Welcome to Realty Talk, the show that brings together the country's most authoritative and respected property experts. Follow us on all the socials and subscribe for updates and exclusive offers. Realty Talk is powered by realty.com.au, connecting buyers, sellers and agents differently. Hello and welcome to the show. When auction clearance rates consistently remain near 80%, it means that there are more buyers than sellers in the market. And this eventually leads to higher property prices. That's clearly where we are right now. With in excess of 2,000 properties being auctioned every week, and given the strong ongoing interest in auctions, it's worth revisiting key aspects of auctions for buyers. Bushy Martin does that today in the show with buyer's agent and builder's broker Robert Newman of Blackford's Urban Habitats. Hey, did you know that over 60% of all new home loans in Australia are now facilitated by mortgage brokers? The growth is so strong that ASIC has moved to put in place a process called Best Interests Duty. They do that as a guide for brokers and also protection for consumers. So what, if anything, has changed since it came into force on January 1 this year? What are you going to find out today? And on that subject, financing, brokers and banks, in Bushy's last word, he talks about a worrying trend that's emerged where the banks are contacting borrowers who've been introduced by a mortgage broker and offering enticing locked-in four- to five-year fixed-rate loans. Bushy calls them golden handcuffs, and for good reason. He'll explain today in the show. But first up, we're delighted to welcome back into the show Bryce Holdaway. Now, Bryce is well known for his TV appearances in Location, Location, Location Australia, the ABC's Escape to the Country, and Relocation, Relocation Australia, as well as being the co-host on the very popular podcast, The Property Couch with Ben Kingsley. Bryce has some thoughts about who, on your panel of property experts, and I certainly trust that you've got one, who you should be most concerned about impressing. You might be surprised with his thoughts on that subject. Well, a big show lined up, so let's get underway. Welcome. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll know that property investing is definitely an elite team sport. And as a long-term investor, your team needs to include the likes of a good accountant, a mortgage broker, a buyer's agent, a valuer, a QS, a property manager, just as the bare minimum. But to be successful, who's the person that you need to most impress? You may be surprised at the answer. So to discuss and reveal this, we're joined by leading buyer's advocate, Bryce Holdaway of Empower Wealth and the recent co-host of uh, Escape to the Country. Welcome back to the show, Bryce. G'day, Bushy. Thanks for having me. Mate, uh, I thought your smile might have been a bit bigger today. With the Dockers win over the uh, Swans on the weekend, I thought you'd be beaming from ear to ear. Oh, we can go there. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very happy about that result, mate. So um, I'm, I'm happy to tick-tack on that, but I'm sure everyone wants to uh, hear more important things about property than uh, my short-term uh, victories around a Frio win. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Tiger supporter, mate, so it's a little bit of an up, up and down uh, exercise yeah. for me this year. <laughs> mate, uh, we'll, we'll jump straight in. Uh, now, you, you've been helping investors for many years. Who do you believe buy and holders most need to impress? Well, Bushy, you'd know this uh, when we get to it, but I had a bit of fun um, 
uh, when I get to speak in front of a live audience. And uh, I often use this as a playful way to say, Who, who's the most important person? And people put their hands up, oh, you as the, no, you know, you're important, but not you. And then what about the tenant? Yep, the tenant's really important, but uh, it's not them. And so I qualify it by saying, if you're a buy and hold investor, I think the most important person that you need to impress is the valuer. And the reason is really simple. And it's important to, if you are buy and hold, the game is to go, well, I'm actually going to hold it for a long time, ideally pass it through generations. So if that's the case, and I'm never going to get a real estate agent through, and there's never going to be a board out the front, the person who's going to come through is a valuer. The bank will send them out. I want to refinance against it so I can either fund some lifestyle design, or if you're in the early accumulation phase, it's to fund the next property in the journey. So when, when you really think about it, it's okay, put yourself in the shoes of this value is coming through. What will they be looking for? How will they view the property you purchased? Because at the end of the day, they're going to send a report to the bank that has your destiny in your hands. Yeah, beautiful. So let's break that down a little bit, I think, in terms of what do the valuers look for so that, so that uh, buy and hold investors can be thinking that way. Yeah, I always think it. Um, I think it's a real paradox with investing. And again, Bush, you know this, but um, uh, when you're buying an investment property, the paradox is you should not be chasing investor uh, appeal properties. And for most people, that's 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 a head scratch if they're new to this game. But basically, what we're saying is we want to invest in a game that is dominated by owner occupiers, not dominated by investors. So. Therefore, if we want to model success, why wouldn't we model what the owner-occupier wants rather than modeling what the investor wants? And if you let that land and let that sink in, then you can obviously say, well, what is it that an owner-occupier wants? And so there's a few features we can run. Starts with, let's just assume we're buying a house, but kind of the similar principles apply if you're buying a townhouse or an apartment. But if I'm buying a house and it's 400 square meters of land, um, the question is, is that a good size? Um, not sure. Depends if the suburb normal is 700 square meter blocks and then it's not a good size or if the suburb normal is 250 square meter blocks. So, so by getting a context of the size of the land within the suburb that you're buying as a, as a, a baseline or an equilibrium, for me, is a really good starting point because if you're buying um, average or bigger size blocks, well, then you're giving yourself the best chance of getting the valuer to walk through your house they're going to compare your house to other properties that are similar within a one kilometer radius. And you're getting that first big tick bushy that says, all right, we're in the game here. Um, the land size is representative of what is the suburb norm or better rather than worse than the suburb norm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, sorry. sorry yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go on. Let's, let's break down to some of the other, other factors yeah. that they're looking for. So once you've got land size, it then becomes about street appeal. Have you got a big frontage or not? Um, have you got, Car parking and car parking is not essential because if you're in an inner uh, suburban suburb of uh, Melbourne, let's call it Yarraville or in Sydney or in Marrickville or wherever you are. And in some of these areas that have terrace homes, they, they just do not have street parking, uh, off street parking. Um, it's actually on street parking, which is the norm. So if you buy one of those properties without um, off street parking, that's the norm to the suburb. So the valuer will be thinking about this versus if you go and buy a property without off-street parking in a suburb where off-street parking is the norm, a bit more suburban or a bit further out, then the value is going to be thinking, ah, this is something that is a bit of a concern for me. So they will mark that down. So what I like to do is, is go from 30,000 feet and then go down as specific as we can. So we start at the top, we go land size, then we go street frontage, then we go the car parking. And then really it, it comes down to, well, 
an owner occupier is going to value the orientation of the house on the block. So we live in the southern hemisphere, bushy. So therefore, the north facing rear is the, the best um, because in winter we get more of the sun, um, which is going to heat up our house naturally, right? So that's the, that's the premium. So if you're buying a property that has a south facing rear, well, the value is going to find that difficult to stack that up against a north facing rear property or give it a premium because it doesn't have as much demand from owner occupier. So we want to make sure that the orientation of the block is maximized um, to the best of the ability for north orientation, which doesn't mean if you've got a south, a west or an east, it's a dud. It just means it's a consideration and we're trying to get an outperform result. And then once we've done that, we go to floor plan. Does the floor plan make sense? And, and the way I try and do this, um, because there's so many different floor plans across the country, as you know. So the, the, the textbook floor plan is this. If you just imagine a rectangle that has four sections within that rectangle, the front section is the bedrooms, the second section is the services, the third section is living, and the fourth section is entertainment. If you roughly overlay the floor plan through that sort of textbook ideal plan, you can get a bit of a sense of the appeal because most people want to entertain at the back and they want to sleep at the front and they want everything strategically placed in the middle. Now, again, there's no 10 out of 10 properties, but if you use that as a guide, you'll start to be understanding um, what a value is doing as they walk through the property to try and get a bit of a sense of, is this a rabbit warren or does the flow work here? Um, and that's really, really key. So, so again, you can see we're starting to get down to the details. And then if we step away a little bit, um, the last thing you want to do is, can I turn this house from apples into apple pie? So is there a higher and better use of the land that the valuer may place a premium on? You might be in a zone that allows you to knock an old house over with all those, all those things we talked about, flat block, rear, north rear, but an older house, you can knock it down and put two townhouses and you can improve the value. So there's just a couple of things that, um, that a, an owner occupier will value. And therefore, a valuer will place a premium on so that it can help you. Because if you essentially are going to revalue the property and send a valuation back to the bank so you can pull the equity out to buy property number two, three, or four, these are things that are really, really important. It's something we need to think about in advance if we want to be a, um, a, you know, a pro investor rather than an enthusiastic amateur. Yeah, I love it. That's a, a really good uh, top-down to, to micro approach. I, one of the analogies I use, Bryce, is uh, not to overcapitalize either because, uh, you know, the, the value is essentially looking at the past, whereas the buyer is always looking at the future. Uh, you know, it's, it's the old story. If, you, if you're uh, presenting a, a statesman Holden versus a Commodore, uh, because you've spent more money on the, the marble on the kitchen sink or the vanity in the bathroom, uh, to the valuer, it's still a holding. And yep. uh, you've got to get that balance right between past and present and, and not spending enough, but not spending too much that's not then going to be reflected in the value and the equity that you can then use. It's a great analogy. I really like it. And you're right. The valuer at the end of the day doesn't get paid enough to stick their neck out and say it's a statesman. They only get paid enough to put in the valuation as a holding. And that's a really, really good point you make. And it's something that investors should think about because um, you are investing for a return. You're not investing for an emotional outcome. And um, uh, like you say, if you like statesmen, it's irrelevant because it, you know it's a game of finance investing. And so you need to know the rules of the game. And the rules of the game are, 
valuers will get sent out. They will have a look and they'll send a report to the bank. So make sure you're thinking about them in at, at the point of buying, not post-buying. Yes. Yeah, no, brilliant thoughts there, mate. It's, uh, you've really summed it up beautifully. Uh, always like the way you can sort of uh, get the gold out of uh, the exercise there. Uh, really appreciate your time on the show today. It's it's quite clear that we need to start thinking like a valuer and look for properties with the owner-occupied appeal. That's that's the real take-home for me. Really appreciate your time today, Bryce. Hey, thanks for having me on, Bushy. Stay with us. Uh, you're watching Realty Talk. Property deductions can save you thousands of dollars each year. To make sure you maximise deductions, you need to work with the most experienced quantity surveyor in the country. BMT Tax Depreciation is the leading specialist in the industry. They've completed over 700,000 tax deduction schedules for residential investment and commercial properties Australia-wide. BMT guarantee to find double your fee in the first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation-free quote. Welcome. Now, it appears that the Australian property market is in the grip of auction mania. With nearly 50% of all property sales going to auction at the moment, compared with the long-term average of about 10 to 30%. And we're seeing between 2,500 to 3,000 auctions a week, with clearance rates at around 80%. Now, this compares with just 420 auctions at the same time last year, the clearance rate of only 60%. So clearly, there's more buyers than there are sellers at the moment. And if you're looking to buy, then you need to brush up on your auction skills. So to help us with this, we're joined by leading buyer's agent and builder broker, Rob Newman from Blackford's Urban Habitats. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hey, Bushy. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Likewise, mate. Uh, you've always got a lot of wisdom to to share in this area. Uh, now, Rob, to kick it off, what's what's the first thing that buyers need to understand about auctions? Great question to start with, Bushy. My number one concern, and what I would say, especially to young people, is they need to understand that if they are the winning bidder at an auction, that they have bought the property unconditionally. So with the exception of whatever terms and conditions they have negotiated with the agent prior, which will predominantly revolve around uh, settlement time and also deposit, with the exception of anything that they have confirmed in writing, they own the property on the fall of the hammer. Yeah, that's a very important distinction to be aware of. So if I was putting together a, uh, an auction buyer's checklist, what should I be including, Rob? So the number one is to bid with confidence to, first of all, the level you're comfortable with that you can sleep at night. That's number one. Number two is probably actually more important is know your finance limits. Speak to a broker before. If you can get a pre-approval and know exactly what your limit is that you can spend. Okay. And obviously don't go over that because if you can't raise the money, then you're in fault of the contract and all sorts of things can, ha can happen to you after that. So the number one is um, make sure your finance is in place. Number two is to check both physically and legally what passes with the home. Okay, so in the contract, it will state what passes. For example, if there's a garden gnome or a uh, bird bath or something like that, it will state it in there. But you need a good conveyancer in your team as well to read through, especially the form ones, to see if there's anything like any encumbrances, rights of way, et cetera, et cetera, that will pass with the property. So you will be bound to those when you own it. 
Yeah, no, very good thoughts there. So if you're giving us uh, tips on uh, what we should be doing when we're buying an auction, what would be the top three? So uh, the number one would be, as I've just mentioned, make sure your finance is in order, then set yourself your um, limit. Um, Then I would go around and look at other properties that sell, similar properties that sell in the area that are comparable. By that, what I mean is similar land size, similar style of dwelling, and make yourself au fait with the, the market so that you're not surprised when something is advertised for, for example, $800,000 and it sells for $950 or a million dollars, that you can see what the market is genuinely paying. And don't be afraid to even register and bid for something. It'll make you uh, comfortable with the auction process, especially right in the middle of an auction uh, when the auctioneer talks to you. So when you do get to that one that you are successful at, you're calm, comfortable, and have been through the process. Yeah, good thoughts there. I, one of the other tips I know you've mentioned to me in the past is uh, rather than having a, a round number that you're going to end on, that to, to come up with something a bit different. Uh, share, with, share with us uh, and elaborate on that for us if you can. Mate, you're giving away my trade secrets here, but um, one of my favourites is that I never finish on a round number or never put my higher limit on a round number. So quite often people say I can go to 750, I can go to 800, for example, always have that last little bit more in your kitty. And if you if it is 700, for example, don't make it 705, make it 706 or 707, 680, because people will finish on a round number and you never know when you're gonna win the property for just that extra thousand or hundred dollars. Obviously you need to stay within the limits that your finance broker has set you, but yeah, avoid round numbers. Yeah, that's very good thinking and, and some really good tips there, Rob. I really appreciate you uh, sharing some of that with us. Uh, one of the big tips that I would be giving uh, people, uh, Rob, is to make sure you've actually got a, uh, a good buyer's advocate or buyer's agent representing you at an auction because they can remove the emotion from the equation and make sure that you are not paying too much for the property or getting caught up in the, the action. So, uh, and and for those that, that want to, I encourage them to reach out to you, Rob, at, Blockford, at Blackford's Urban Habitat. So uh, appreciate your time joining us today, Rob. My pleasure, Bushy. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Now, more after the break. So stay with us here on Realty Talk. Property depreciation is the natural wear and tear of a building and its assets. Property investors can claim depreciation as a tax deduction each financial year. Depreciation is a non-cash deduction. This means you don't need to spend any money in order to claim it. On average, BMT tax depreciation find residential investors almost $9,000 in first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300-728-726 today for an obligation-free quote. Welcome. Now, there's been a lot of talk in the press in recent times about concerns that the government is loosening lending laws. But with over 60% of home loans now being facilitated through mortgage brokers, you may not be aware of the best interest duty or the bid requirements that were introduced on the 1st of January this, this year. And this is all intended to further protect your interests. So to discuss what the best interest duty means, we're joined by Jason Beck, of Broker Essentials, Australia's leading broking coach. So welcome to the show, Jason. Hey, Bushy, it's great to be here. 
Likewise, mate, uh, always given your coverage right across the industry, you've always got some great insights. And, uh, you know, the best interest duty is something that's on uh, the lips of all mortgage brokers at the moment. Uh, but for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, can you start by telling us what is it actually? Look, uh, Bushy, best interest duty is actually really simple. Uh, the best interest duty and the related obligations are designed to ensure that retail customers effectively get their objectives, you know, their financial situation and their needs met, um, and that the broker actually acts in the best interest of the customer. Now, that, that would seem fairly self-evident uh, in terms of what a, a customer probably expects. Uh, so why should people care about that, mate? Look, best interest duty came about through uh, changes in the Royal Commission back in 2019 and 20, when uh, the banking system was under review. And one of the things that came out of that was with the Hain decisions that brokers, because we effectively were independent of banks, um, should be more regulated in how we provide advice because the previous legislation uh, was actually quite an unusual terminology. It basically meant brokers had to recommend a not unsuitable product. Uh, now that sounds really quite unusual. Um, and what we as an industry really thought is that that's a pretty low benchmark. Uh, so, you know, brokers, we've always felt acted in the best interest of customers anyway, but to have a legislation that sort of said, you know, that we can't recommend, you know, an unsuitable product. Uh, what we're really here is saying that because brokers can recommend such a wide variety of products to their clients, uh, in effect, most brokers will have ac access to, you know, 40 odd lenders on their panel. Um, what we're really looking to here to do is to make sure that the recommendation um, uh, without fear or favour, without any um, uh, undue influence or incentives uh, is, is what's really best for the customer. Yeah, okay. So uh, the best interest duty then, does it apply equally to both brokers and the banks? It's a really interesting question, Bushy. Uh, it actually doesn't. Um, now, the reason why is because the banking system uh, is set up, obviously, to sell um, one product. So if I'm at ANZ, uh, I sell ANZ products. If I'm a, a Westpac staff member, I sell Westpac products. Um, so therefore, the legislation uh, at present doesn't capture them uh, under the changes because they're just recommending their product. They're not putting themselves out there as saying that we're acting in your best interest across the market. Uh, whereas the reasons why brokers exist is because choice is such an important factor for customers that they have to be able to say, look, we are going to go to the market. We are going to review a whole stack of different products out there. Um, and we are going to find one that suits your needs. So uh, there is a clear uh, sort of delineation between the two channels. Uh, you know, brokers uh, have got access to a lot more products and services. Um, they obviously are now very uh, aligned and legislated and regulated to act in the client's best interest. Uh, now, I'm not saying that that's not what the banks do, but they're certainly not legally bound by it at this stage. Mm, well, that's interesting. That, that mm. creates a very clear distinction uh, in terms of the difference in approach. And the take home for me from all that is obviously that if, if someone's looking to get a loan and they really do want their uh, specific needs and interests met and protected, then uh, they've got a better chance of doing that through the broken channel that has a, you know, a, an obligation to make sure and a duty of care to make sure that they're looking after it versus the bank who's really main master is the shareholders of the of the bank itself so yeah, it's a tough one bush i mean i'm an ex-bank employee i worked at a bank for 20 years and I, I certainly love my time there but as a you know as a consumer as well i know that when you know i approached my bank a couple of years ago and uh one of my needs for the way i set my loans up is that i want multiple offset accounts 
Now, the bank that I was with at that time uh, doesn't offer that particular feature to their, their, their product. Uh, now, if I walk into their, their branch or I call them up and I ask for some alternatives, they're under no obligation to say, hey, you know, you can go down the road and, and pick that bank that's red or it's yellow or whatever color it is, uh, and you can find that product there. Uh, they're not obliged to do so. Um, whereas when I go to my broker who fulfilled uh, and has been fulfilling my loans for many years now, um, when we talk about my needs, that was a specific, a specific need. Um, and then he goes off and he finds the banks that then can offer me that range of services. Uh, and then I get to choose uh, which one that I want to go with based on you know, what they're recommending. So, you know, personally, as I said, it works well because I get to explore obviously more things. And as a, as a certain person who's time poor, um, it means that I've got someone doing the legwork for me. So uh, again, you know, the broker channel offers, offers a, a sort of variety of different alternatives to the traditional thing that we've been doing for you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah, it's uh, an exciting time. And it certainly counters the, the, the view of many that have concerns around the fact that you know, lending laws are loosening with these provisions. I know there's some pretty significant penalties for brokers if they're not acting in the uh, borrower's best interests. So uh, some very interesting times there, Jason. Uh, appreciate your insights on that, mate. Absolute pleasure, Bushy. Thanks for joining us. Now stay with us because after the break, we're going to be talking more here on Realty Talk. Welcome. I want to make you aware of the potential risk associated with fixed rate golden handcuffs, because we've been seeing a worrying trend in recent times where a number of the major banks have been ringing their broker clients introducing themselves as your home loan specialist and trying to get you to fix your uh, home loan and investment loan rates for up to four to five years because fixed rates are currently generally lower than variable rates. Now, this is great for the banks because it essentially means that they've golden handcuffed you for the next four to five years. But is this actually in your best interests? Because the chances are they're not. What you may not be aware of is that when you fix the rate on your loans, a number of changes happen immediately. Firstly, your offset account is turned off. And this means that any savings that you've got sitting in it aren't going to be reducing the loan term or the interest that you're paying. Secondly, you're restricted significantly in terms of how much extra, if any at all, you can pay off the loan during that fixed rate period. And thirdly, you incur very significant break costs, often in the thousands, if you decide to sell the property or to make a change to the loan during that fixed rate period. So against that backdrop, the only time you should consider fixing your loans is if you are 100% confident that nothing is going to change during that fixed rate period. Now that means not losing your job, it means not, not selling the property. So you need to be very careful about that. You also need to make sure that you're not looking to pay any extra off the loan during that period, because the chances are you won't be able to. And thirdly, that you don't have significant savings in an offset account that's no longer going to benefit you in reducing the loan. So I do need to make note that there is a specialist lender that will give you a, a fixed rate loan with a full offset account. So if you're interested in getting the best of both worlds, reach out to me and I'll give you the details. 
So before making a decision on fixing your loan, and if you do get a call from one of the major banks around this, I should strongly suggest you have a chat to a savage mortgage broker who can look at this in the context of not only the rate, but all the other important aspects that you need to incorporate in minimising the overall cost of your loan. That's some food for thought for this week. You're watching Realty Talk. Well, wasn't that interesting. Thanks, Bushy. I can see why the banks would want to do that. And when you consider, as Jason Back told Bushy in today's show, a staggering 60% of all new home loans in Australia are now facilitated by mortgage brokers. Well, you are always best to take advice from an independent source. And that's why I guess mortgage brokers are growing in popularity all the time. They're gaining more and more market share and understandably too. So really good advice there from Bushy and uh, thanks to Bushy and all of his guests. So I want to catch up. If you want to catch up uh, more on Bushy, uh, you can do that at his very popular podcast, Get Invested. Now that's it for another show. Thank you very much for your company. Special thanks to Bushy's guests, Bryce Holdaway from Empower Wealth, Rob Newman from Blackford's Urban Habitats and mortgage broker coach, Jason Back. A reminder too that uh, you can see all of our shows at realty.com.au along with one of Australia's most extensive range of properties for sale from over 7,000 agencies all around the country. Thanks to Realty and also thanks to BMT Tax Depreciation for their ongoing support. Without them, this show simply wouldn't be possible. I'm Kevin Turner. Thanks for your company. We'll see you next time. Miss something in this week's show or want to catch up on past shows? Do it anytime at realty.com.au where we connect buyers, sellers and agents differently. 